Welcome to Product Leaders Podcast, a podcast by FireArt. We are the defenders of usability, champions of product consistency, and the emissaries of enjoyable human technology interactions. Don't play the game, listen to the podcast, where we share conversations in product leadership to help empower you to produce great digital products for your customers. Hey everyone, today we have an incredible guest who is already well known in the product area, Vivek Vaskaran, CEO of Question Pro, bootstrapped his business to 30 million ARR without raising any penny. Hi, Vivek. Hey, hi, darling. Thank you for joining. Maybe before jumping to the topic, you can give us a little of a background, how it's like to be a founder and CEO of, of a successful company. Well, we're still working on it, <laughs> so it's uh, it, it's successful. We have a lot of lot of employees, but uh, definitely we still have more work to do. So I think the the work never stops. I think it's just like a software company. Like you think that when you release one version, there's always the next version to release and the next version. So it's same same. Um, I definitely feel well. Obviously, we feel good about it where we are right now, but we have kind of more work to do, and um, you know we need. If you're 30, we need to get to 100. <laughs> if you're 10, you get to, you know, you get to 30. If you're at 1, you get to 10. So it's kind of always there. Well, awesome. But, and also, I, I checked a few of your articles, and you mentioned Bootstrap way of working like quite a few times. But tell me, like how it's different right now. Do you think it's harder to Bootstrap you know, as a startup at this stage? Just because... Markets in general is overcrowded. The tech is becoming like more complex. Every day there is a new startup launched. And what do you think about bootstrapping business in 2023? Uh, it's true. Uh, I mean, I think when I started off, obviously it was a long time ago. It's kind of the software. De- I mean, both good and bad, right? I mean, software development is a lot, lot more expensive, a lot more complicated. There was no AWS. There was no... Literally, like, you know, I built my own servers. I actually physically built the servers, put in my garage, got a, got an internet connection, installed my SQL, and, you know, and uh, did all that work. So, so from that perspective, it was harder at the time. But today, it's since it's, you know, anybody can get an AWS server and get things started. So there's more competition. So it's easy, but there's more competition. So, so I'm not sure it's harder or easier. It's just different in terms of doing what you need to do. And we were talking a little bit earlier on, I think, you know, building software is relatively easy, straightforward and cheap, if you will, or cheaper, uh, frankly. However, uh, the real challenge is uh, what I call distribution, which is effectively getting your software in the hands of as many people as possible. Um, You can call it marketing, you can call it distribution, you can call it sales, you know, effectively figuring out a way um, to quickly and easily distribute software to um, as many people as possible is the is the bigger challenge. Not building is not the challenge, but getting it out in the hands of you know thousands of people, hundreds of people, as fast as you can, or and cheap, as cheap as you can is the is the fundamental challenge, uh, at least for SaaS tech and startups. Right. At what stage? you as a founder should consider start hiring sales team, SDRs, and uh, starting in general thinking about bigger acquisition strategy? Well, I'd say like, you don't necessarily need to think about, I think 
having SDRs um, and sales teams depends upon what price point you're going after. Really, the way to think about that would be if you're trying to price things, let's say under $1,000 a year, then I think largely you're looking at an automated automated inbound funnel that purchases something online and then kind of uses, uses the platform. Uh, if you're looking, so that's kind of the that's kind of the the motion to think about. So it really depends upon the pricing model. The price, the the way I think about it is, if it's under a thousand dollars a year, then it has to be fully automated. A thousand to ten thousand um, dollars is kind of what I call an assist model has to be put in place. So nobody's spend you know even people who want to spend five thousand dollars, seven thousand dollars would want to talk to you, do get a demo, uh, get comfortable with your product before they give you money. Ten thousand dollars and above. It's more like an enterprise sales motion. They have to kind of really, really have a problem and they have to really get buy-in from their teams. It's not just one person making a decision. There'll be at least few people making a decision. So if you kind of divide the market into three parts, right? Zero to 1,000, one to 10, and 10K and above. Then depending upon where you want to land, then you have a different strategy, right? So if you if you say like, okay, you, you don't even need you know, SDRs and BDRs, you're selling under $1,000. You just need a great growth marketer that can drive traffic, funnel conversion, funnel conversion, funnel conversion. That's it. That's kind of driving traffic, really. If you're in the 1000 to $10,000 range, yeah, you need some traffic, but you need to have a sales team, some sort of a, a team that actually pick up the phone, talk to people and say, hey, uh, what are you trying to do? Let me do a demo. Let me let me help you through this process. Let me do stuff. You need inbound. Maybe you need SDR, BDRs, but you can can do some inbound plus a sales team. And if you are ten thousand dollars above, then you need an SDR team and a BDR team that goes through the process, gets the lead in, and then you have a sales team that takes that over and then and converts them. So I think the key is to first decide which of these three bands you want to play in, and more often than not. I, you know, I think the the challenge really is like optimizing optimizing the flow for each of those bands because there are different processes. So, really, it comes down to like which 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 of these bands you want to we want to play in, and then once you decide which band you want to play in, then optimize the process for um, and know that that's what you need to do to get things going. In each of those bands are different to some extent. And do you think it's better to hire an age, gross, some kind of gross marketing agency or uh, hire someone in-house? Do you think as a founder of a small startup, which way would benefit the most? I, I think it depends upon your skill set. I mean, honestly, it depends upon your skill set. For me, I mean, our big break was really SEO. I was doing SEO before SEO was cool way back when. And I don't think the name was even invented, uh, but I, I'm a technical founder. So an SEO is a very technical kind of solutioning, if you will. So a lot of time people kind of like growth marketer that is super technical can do SEO pretty easily. Um, you don't have to come up with kind of creative ideas. It's more like driving traffic and changing, changing today. It's obviously a lot more harder, but when I started, it was actually easier to do SEO and there's a lot of growth hacks I, I put in play to get traffic into onto question pro. So I think the question, if the question is like, Hey, should we do it internally? Should we do it externally? It's largely dependent upon the founder's kind of skill set, the core skill set that the founder has. If it's a technical founder with a little bit of kind of, you know, a little bit of kind of marketing hacking experience, um, or bent in their, in, in, in their mind, then, then they can do that themselves and they can get some of these hacks done. 
if it's more of a creative founder, design-oriented founder, then they'll need some help and they can, you know, they'll, they'll need to find somebody either internally or externally to get uh, to get some of these things done. My personal experience has always been like, I've kind of like, I've leaned more towards kind of internal rather than outsourcing, um, outsourcing the work. My personal, not necessarily been smart, but for some of the design work I've outsourced, but engineering, software development, every most of these things, I've leaned more towards, you know, internal rather than um, external, external people. Awesome. Yeah, it totally makes sense that in general, if you know how to manage teams or to work with how to work with teams, it's better to have internal team members. And uh, you know, also, it's a great thing that you mentioned SEO. I know like right now, in general, market's overcrowded. And when you're starting to start up, everyone is saying that you need to start investing to SEO from the day one, at least a little bit, because you can't benefit from SEO like just right away. You just, you need some time to gain this yeah. traction. And uh, right now, how much, I don't know, I think like it's sensitive information, but in general, maybe you can say in high level, how much you invest in SEO right now, take into consideration that there are a lot of competitors in the market right now. Yeah, I mean, I, I think if you were to start something, I, I think it's beyond SEO. Today, I would do two things, which we also do today. So number one, before you launch a product, almost you could start doing SEO work almost, you know, frankly, one year before you launch a product. You know, simply put, you can, you can generate content, come up with interesting content and get that machine rolling realistically. So that's kind of number one. But I also think... The second thing that I would do is starting building a community around the target buyer effectively, right? I mean, similar to what you're doing with the podcast, for example, like, okay, look, you're going to, if your target buyer is the founder of a company, then I would create a podcast and create content for a founder of a company, realistically. So you're building out a community effectively, right? Once you have the, because it takes time to build out a community too. Right. If you think about it, like, it, you know, just say, say exactly like SEO. So you could almost run these two things parallel for demand generation in parallel to building your product realistically. Right. So building out your community, doing SEO, you can run almost, you know, frankly, six months before you launch your product because building out a community requires kind of your content, your ability to do interviews, your ability to talk about it. You have somebody to say like, Hey, this is what, this is what you're building a community around founders. Let's put it that way. And you're building, and then you're doing SEO on content for founders. That's what I would do. Kind of get that thing, get that machine started. Um, take six months to kind of ramp up and then you can launch a product and then you have a, you know, effectively you have a target audience, um, to go after as you launch a product and then you can keep, you know, iterating on the product realistically. Uh, your, your specific question was how much do we spend on SEO? We, I mean, I think I think we still spend quite a bit because SEO is a constant kind of battle, quite frankly. I think that's one of the mistakes I made. Like uh, we got to, at one point, we were really good at SEO in 2009, 2010, really. We, I think I was, we were number one for the word survey and all kinds of stuff. So, and then I said, oh, we won. Ooh, let's do it. And, you know, and, then, and then we kind of like stopped working on it, right? They were like, oh, cool, we're good, really, right? But SEO is like somebody else is kind of always working on it. There's one of, you know, SEO is not about how hard you work. It's really about how hard are your competition, competition is working, right? If they're working on it and you're not working on it, obviously they'll, they'll, they'll displace you one way or the other. That their content is updated, you know, they're kind of constantly getting, getting backlinks and so on and so forth. So then, and I think we realized too late, oh my shit, we, we haven't done, you know, done work on SEO and then we got back onto it. So, yeah, I mean, I think we have a separate SEO team of, you know, I think uh, eight or 10 people that are constantly working, both as a technical part and then there's a 
there's a content obviously a content generation part really so that 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 continues to continues to work on it so we have a separate seo team that is you know constantly working on it and one of the things uh, one of the hacks slash kind of interesting things that we did was uh we're a fairly global company so we have obviously not only in english we have actually we have a big team in in Latin America, from in Mexico, and then Germany, and so on and so forth. So we were able to kind of translate our content in each of these languages. Um, so you, like you're right, that SEO is pretty hard in in English, but also not everybody is focused on all these languages, right? So in, in for your product, right? So in Polish, for example, right? So like, yes, you know, getting number one for kind of, you know, product management software, for example, in English might be hard because everybody is chasing after it, but product management software in Polish is actually much, much easier. Um, so that you can, again, these are these are kind of like simple hacks, not simple, but at least these are hacks that you can do to say, hey, can we, can we get to, can you get to that position in Polish? Which is a smaller market, I get it. It's a smaller market. Obviously, English is the bigger market. But again, nonetheless, you could get to number one on these some of these languages, and not everybody is chasing after every language because not everybody's got that kind of bandwidth. And then you can find some pockets that where you can you can have some some sort of an unfair advantage. Um, then you can do it. Uh, we had that with you know with German, Spanish, and Portuguese. So we had you know we had offices in these markets. They were able to take all our content, translate it, and start getting traffic in German. Uh, you know, obviously German, Spanish, and Portuguese. Spanish and Portuguese is good because Spanish was a big big market, really. Right. So it's outside of English, Spanish and Portuguese is is kind of fairly big market. So we were able to do that. So that was kind of that was one of the hacks that we did that actually worked out very very well for us. Yeah, it's awesome. And I think it's really insightful. I would say growth hack. Even taking into consideration that you're targeting like smaller markets, but if you're targeting few smaller targets, then uh, in general, you will end up with a lot of clients and you can cover some part of the world at least. And then it's easier to expand when you have feedback, you have users and they're paying. Yeah, exactly. Yeah. And I know that also in... One of your interviews, I probably with Nathan Latka, you also mentioned one of their tips that you need to say yes to every customer request anything. But uh, how you prioritize that? I mean, you know, every company is different. It also depends on who is working with your product, how you define what, what should be developed, what should be postponed, how you prioritize things. Yeah, I mean, I, I think there was a phase. I mean, we don't do that anymore. Again, it depends upon the phase and kind of where you are. And I think what I'd say is like, you know, in the earlier part of, you know, when you're, when you're trying to find product market fit, my, at least, it was born out of necessity. Uh, another way to look at it is born out of necessity. Like, look, you know, I needed pretty simple. We needed the money. There were customers that had problems and we needed to make sure that you know, we solved 100% of their problems. Let's put it that way, right? I think it's reasonably easy to convince somebody, say like, okay, look, I'll solve 100% of your problems, but, and that means, you know, modifying your product, kind of, you know, to solve 100% of the problems. I think why it may seem like, okay, you can't say yes to everything, uh, but I do believe that from an engineering perspective, you know, everybody thinks that their problems are massively unique. That's the good thing. But the reality is it's not, <laughs> you, know, you know, you know, problems are, 
uh, your ability to kind of generalize the problem is the most important skill that you need to learn or you need to have, right? So that's kind of at least my viewpoint. My viewpoint is that like, look, you come to me and say like, I have this problem. I have like, you know, I have teams all over the place and, you know, I need a product management tool to kind of like, you know, coordinate content. It is not a unique problem, but as long as you're convinced it's unique and there may be some particular piece that is very unique to you. If you can solve for that entire use case, but in a generic way, obviously you're building a product. On one side, you're building a product, but on the other side, you're almost consulting with that company, right? To say like, what's your problem? How can I solve that problem, right? So it's kind of like, you know, on one side, you can say like, I can be a consultant. I can solve 100% of your problem. On the other side, you can be a product. You're a product, take it. This is what it does. So you kind of bridge that gap in between and say like, like we'll, we'll behave like a consultant, but we'll really, what we're really doing is building a product, using that consulting to build a product realistically. And your ability to kind of translate that and not make that product, you know, make that product customizable effectively, right? So what you need to do is to do the configuration and customizability goes up, then you can, you're building a product. So that that is the key element of taking somebody's kind of unique problem and making it into a generic solution. Right. And yet charging them probably as like almost like not maybe consulting fees, but not necessarily charging them, you know, 10 bucks, you know, let's say you, you want to sell the product for a thousand dollars a year. You can't charge thousand dollars a year for a custom problem realistically. So it's the gap really, you know, if you think about it. So if you can bridge that gap efficiently, then you, you let's say a consultant will come and say like, well, I'll solve this problem for you. I'll do custom development for you. Well, it's going to cost you, I don't know, you know, $200,000, let's put it that way, right? It's your problem. I will build a solution that solves exactly how you do it. So it's, it's a custom development job. On this side, there's a product, really, right? So the product is, I don't know, 1000 bucks, really. So the answer is somewhere between $1,000 and $200,000 in terms of $200,000, you have a custom solution, $1,000, you have a generic solution, and I'll try to make it work. So what you can go, what I did was, I used to say, well, you're not going to pay $200,000, but I'm not going to charge you a thousand dollars either so i'm going to charge you let's say you know, sixty thousand dollars right sixty thousand dollars to kind of take my product change it morph it build it enough that it solves your problem so when you put it in that context you can get sixty thousand dollars for your product and then you use that money to build build the features build the configurability into your product so that is one of the i guess one of the growth hacks if you will that's one of the models that i use to kind of, you know, funnel money into the company to say like, hey, look, you you have this problem. You know, if you will try to custom solution, this problem is going to cost you X. I'm going to not charge you X. I'm going to charge you half of that or one third of that effectively. And you still solve the problem, but I get to build my product using that money that goes into product development. And I use that money to build the product up. As you mentioned that you're always trying to generalize the, the solution for your customers. But at this stage, do you have any kind of specific segments that you are targeting the most? No, I mean, we are a pretty horizontal product ourselves. Um, we have certain vertical focus in certain areas, but generally we are a pretty horizontal product, right? So, you know, at Question Pro, we compete with SurveyMonkey type from Qualtrics. Um, so it's an online online research platform for collecting data, analyzing data. So we are not, we are not verticalized our solution. We are pretty, pretty horizontal, pretty global. We have a very specific target persona that we chase after we are, you know there are three there are three different buyers that we chase after one is market research and consumer insights uh, people are doing research within a company and number two is people who are doing customer experience managing customer experience which is you know running nps and things like that and the third component of our business is you know people who are running surveys against their employees the head of hr so 
so my key thing is like finding who the buyer is is actually super important, right? So like you said, for your company, it's like, look, I'm I'm chasing after founders who are building, you know, building the product who need a product analytics tool, right? You know, so who are you selling to? Should be it should be, you know, you, if you say like I'm selling to the whole world, then it's super complicated. Then uh, it's, it's it's difficult to kind of make make a case. Um, although everybody wants to build a product that everybody wants to buy, that's uh, it's cute to say that. But then your marketing messaging is like, okay, I'm I'm for everybody. Then it it it, it definitely becomes nobody. So I think understanding the buyer and the I'm not understanding or targeting, and you can sell it for different types of people. But having a clear having a clear target is actually pretty important. Uh, once you have a clear target, then you can you know build a community against that buyer, do SEO against that buyer, see what kinds of things they, they those kind of people search for, do a lot of things. But until you have a buyer in mind, then what's called, you know, in the sales world, we call them ICPs or, you know, ideal customer profile, right? So who, who are you trying to sell to? So kind of defining that very clearly early on as, as fast as you can would probably kind of create better momentum in terms of whatever you're trying to build. And you can build, you know, frankly, you can build the same product to different buyers, you know, so it's so the same product. You know, it's not going to say like, look, this is for these kind of people, this, you know, and you create your marketing message for a particular buyer and then zone in on that. And that's actually pretty important. Yeah, it's awesome. And in general, I would say I did a research about yourself. I, I got an impression that, and I'm sure that I'm right, and you're really awesome salesman. And <laughs> tell me, how when you started how you manage to juggle between sales processes and also juggle between sales processes and product management i mean when you're probably in early stages you you did everything but how you manage to do that actually so it ends up with a company that uh, having 30 million arr <laughs> Yeah, I mean, I think the good news about sales, and, and I tell, I'll tell this to everybody, like, you know, uh, first of all, sales uh, sales is something that you just learn. And I think everybody is in sales fundamentally in some way, shape or form at some point in their lives. And and for me personally, I think it was, it was an aha moment internally. I mean, uh, my standard, I mean, obviously I talk a lot right now, but when I started off, I was a developer. Obviously my, my background is in software development and engineering. You know, that's what I went to college for computer science, computer engineering. And again, I viewed myself as like, look, you know, give me a problem, I'll solve the problem. I can code anything you want me to code, Java, Node, and all that stuff. I can I can solve any, every problem. But then at some point, I think it was, I was trying to kind of, I was trying, I mean, obviously we had to sell to people. So I was talking to a customer here and there. And then I realized like, oh, look, I mean, sales is actually not that hard once you kind of break it down as to it's solving a particular problem and asking for money. That's it. Right. If you break down what sales is, is you should you should be able to solve a problem and you should ask for money. Right. And asking for money is the hard part. Honestly, most people are fairly in society. We are all trained kind of we're trained to be somehow we consider that to be slightly uncomfortable. Okay? You know, most people find it very uncomfortable to ask for money. And uh, what you have to get over the fear, it's an internal fear, internal kind of model. Right. It's like, hey, look. I'm going to solve some of your problems. Here's how much it's going to go. And how much is it? What do you, you know, you know, here's how much I want you to pay for that. As long as you can frame that conversation in the right context, right? So like, okay, look, here's your problem. You want to build this product. Here's what, here's what, you know, here's what we can do for you. And here's how much it's going to cost. 
and you kind of, you know, at least for me, I had, you know, I'm an engineer, obviously. So I break, broke that down into a simple kind of thing in my head. It's already, most of it is in your head really. Right. So, so once you kind of overcome that kind of fear of rejection, I mean, sales also the biggest challenge is fear of rejection. Right. So it's like, and we all have that fear of rejection. All of us have it. Um, and the only way you kind of go over the fear of rejection, you do the same thing like a hundred times. That's it. Right? You just do it. And you, you don't worry about it. People are going to tell you to fuck off. That's fine. <laughs> That's normal. You can't say, oh my God, you know, somebody told me to, you know, told me this is a stupid idea. I'm, All right, fine. Go to the next guy. 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 So I think that that's, that's an internal fear. And I think we just have to overcome that. Uh, if you want to be good in sales, you have to overcome rejection. You have to overcome, people are going to say that this is the stupidest thing that I ever heard. You have to kind of say, yes, no problem. I'll call you tomorrow again and then uh, go forward with it. Um, um, so I think uh, to me, it's really in your head that you have to unlock that. Once you unlock that, then you can sell, simply put. That's kind of then, then you kind of open the open the floodgates of kind of what can be done. Um, and then, you know, as a, as a founder, I mean, that combined with the ability to build a product. So the two skills combined becomes very, very efficient, frankly, let's put it that way, right? And say like, oh, look, because I was able to build, I'm an engineer and software developer, I can build whatever I want to, you know, tell me what to build. It's not that complicated. But then I was able to kind of take what I built and sell it also. And say like, hey, look, what do you want to do? And this is how it's going to work. You know, do you want this? And also, I was lucky, quite frankly, like like most um, in the states, at least, sales is more about solutioning and value rather than relationships, right? I mean, other markets. Uh, for example, I, I tried to sell in India, and I suck at it, quite frankly, because a lot of a lot of sales in India is about who you know and you know relationships, as opposed to what the value of the product that you're bringing to the table, realistically, right? Although things are changing now, but you know, even a few years ago, I I, I don't think they're you know. I don't think it's changed as much, uh, at least in developed markets like, you know, US, Canada, you know, UK, Australia, a lot of sales is solve the problem. I'll give you money. That's it. I don't care. You know, I don't care whether you like me or not. You don't have to know my birthday and all that shit. It's nice to know all that stuff, but realistically, it's come down to like, hey, I have a problem, solve this problem, and I'll I'll pay you. And uh, it's value-based as opposed to relationship-based. So therefore, if you are technical kind of sales person, then value-based selling is actually pretty easy to do. So here's a problem. I can solve that problem for you. Here's what it takes and, and go forward. So that's that was that actually worked to my advantage, frankly. Obviously it worked to my advantage. Um and I, I was lucky I was in the States. It was easy to do it and uh, and when and we did it. Right, right. I actually agree with you. I mean uh, like if we get back to the part with a uh, fear of rejection, even myself, I needed some time to get used to it. Sometimes before, when I just started writing, you know, different marketing emails to generate more leads, and sometimes users just, or some kind of leads, like getting back to me, just saying, stop spamming me, or please unsubscribe me from your, I don't know, database of clients, leads, whatever. Even such messages get me frustrate, frustrated me before. And when I you know, listen to other people saying that uh, my idea or approach is not something that they are going to go with. I, In my brain, I was thinking and taking mind that don't take it personal, but inside yeah. I still feel it that I'm not offended, but at least I'm sad. <laughs> and I, I don't want to do, and so, sometimes I'm thinking, okay, 
tomorrow I don't want to do it. But uh, after a while, you just get used to this type of rejection. And then you it's it, it was just at some point, like an aha moment that you just realize that who cares? Tomorrow, this person exactly. will forget me. And there is a chance that in two months, I can reach out again. And this person won't even remember me. I will Absolutely. just try another Absolutely. strategy. Yeah, exactly. You have a thick skin. If you want to be good in sales, number one, you have to have a very thick skin. So people are going to say no, and that's fine. People are going to tell you to fuck off, and that's also fine. It's their, it's their viewpoint. But you got to do what you got to do. And a large, large part of sales is discipline, asking for what, what you want and kind of like pounding it again and again and again, waking up the next day morning and having the, having the, you know, having the wherewithal to do it. So I think it's grit. I'm a big believer in grit. Grit is kind of the, the correct term in English the, to, to say like, you know, you wake up and you fight the battle again and then you get, you know, you wake up again. Right. Um, Angela Duckworth has written kind of a book as well as kind of written a couple of TED Talks. And I really like her thinking like that's one of the single most kind of drivers for success in terms of kind of not giving up, um, especially as we were talking about founders and kind of starting up and things like that. And if you just stick around and not give up, you know, it is, it's fine. I mean, most of the times it's going to work out. It's just have to have the, you know, the, the, mm-hmm. the, the internal wherewithal to kind of like, no, I'm not going to give up. I'm not going to give up. And, you know, even in our journey, I would argue like there were times that were like, Shit, man, things are just not working. We're trying so hard. And even today, I would argue like there are a lot of things we are trying that is simply not working. You know, and you look at somebody else, like, oh, shit, they're making, you know, twice the amount of money, three times the amount of money that we are working on, what's wrong? And then, you, you know, and that's what, you know, separates entrepreneurs from everybody else is like they have the grit. They have to say like, okay, look, it's not working, but we'll figure it out. We'll work on it. We'll work on it and we'll work on it again until we figure it out. So that's that's kind of the key, um, the key part to kind of, you know, sustaining and then more, a lot of people obviously give up and it's like, ah, oh, shit, it's not going to work. Um, and even I've given up on multiple products. Um, and there's no easy answer. Honestly, there's no easy answer. Sometimes you're just like, shit, man, I'm not, not able to, not able to sort of, you know, withstand the pressure, give up. And it's normal. I'd say like, there's not, it, it, it is, it is a, it's a personal choice. It's a personal decision. And, and there are no, honestly, there are no right or wrong answers. It's just like, you know, it's, 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 uh, it is what it is. Yeah, I totally agree with you. You just need to accept the fact that uh, in general, the life itself is unfair and you can succeed uh, after two fails, but sometimes you need to fail 10 companies to, to succeed, to have one successful. But if you like yeah. this journey, then you just need to accept it and just don't give up. Yeah, yeah, it's a journey. I have made that as part of my kind of thesis that, you know, the journey has to be fun and, you know, you know, do what you want to do. Don't get too caught up with a bunch of things. So make sure you're, everybody's having fun in this, in this process. And, you know, it's, it's a journey, just that's it. And that requires, you know, don't get too caught up with like, you know, either, either success or failure, really. So that's kind of like, you know, a little bit of kind of like, Hey, it's, it's a journey. We're going to have some fun. Surround yourself with good people. You'll meet amazing people in your life and through this process and, they'll enrich your they'll enrich your lives in one way shape or form um and and keep following and that's about it there's 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 no more to it no less to it right and tell me your secret how it comes that you're running a company for 18 years and 
you are still running it. I mean, based on other tech news, there are a lot of founders that was running a company for a few years and then they decided to exit or they got burned out, like a lot of such stuff, especially a lot of topics about founders that have issues with mental health and whatever, whatever. But uh, tell me your secret, how you're still so active, motivated, where you take so many energy to manage such a big company, but also at the same time acquiring other companies and also being CEO and also have time going to, to the different podcasts, writing articles and so on. How you find time to do all such things right now? Uh, yeah, I mean, I think a uh, different question, like, no, uh, you know, keep keeping yourself motivated. Uh, I think it's largely, again, in your head, frankly. Uh, I think we got... Even for me, like there was a time I took took a time out. I've been obviously I've been at this for a long time. I took a break. I, I from 2005 to 2010 I ran the company. Then 2010 to 2015 I kind of took a break. I did a couple of other startups. I didn't run Question Pro, and then I came back to run Question Pro realistically in 2016. But again, if you think about it, like you know, as we've grown from you know obviously zero to 30, at different stages my role has changed. Um, effectively, what I do is completely different. And if you think about it, step back and, you know, how do you keep yourself motivated? You have to do interesting things, newer things. That's what keeps us motivated. You can't do the same thing for more than, you know, a couple of years, realistically, right? So you're like, okay. And another way to look at it is like, okay, this is a big company now. Now my job at this point is to find a way to grow this company from 30 to 100 million bucks, right? The, the things that I need to do are completely different than what that what that what got me here, really, right? So, so I think kind of putting that frame of reference in your mind um, keeps you. That's how I do it, at least. Putting the framework, like, okay, I got, you know, what would I do? Okay, I can sell this company. Obviously, I can sell this company. I can retire. Separate issue. Okay, fine. But if I another way is like, if I sell this company, I probably want to go join another company, try to get them from. 30 to 100. That's an interesting problem, right? So just look at it as a problem space, right? Can I, can I, and I've never done that. Let's put it that way. Obviously, I've never done that, right? So, so I look at that and say, that's an interesting challenge. If I were given a company to go from 30 to 100, what, what would I do? What are the things that we need to do? It's completely different than trying to get a company from one to 10, for example, right? It's like a completely different set of like tasks, activities, how, how do you think about things? So I think to me, like that's how I've kind of, we have had different phases of growth in the company. And then you are my role, even though obviously I've been the founder and CEO of this company, my actually physically what I, what I need to do has changed every three to five years realistically, right? Three years I've been doing this and then we grow. And then now I have to like reset my thinking and say, I, I can't do the same thing because you will get linear growth at that point. You have to do something new and try to grow the company. Yeah. And so that's how, that's what keeps me motivated. I'm not, you know, frankly, Part of the reason you asked me, like, hey, why haven't we sold the company? Or kind of like, you know, that's that's one of the, ex- you know, what's kind of at least in, in your mind. We are a fairly profitable company. So I look at it and say, like, look, well, we're making money. I don't care. You know, so we'll, we're, you know, if you want to sell the company, you can sell the company. If you don't want to sell the company, we don't want to sell the company. That's it. Uh, that's how I, I look at it. And personally, uh, you know, it's an interesting challenge to try to get to, a, you know, get to this size also was my first challenge. Like, okay, look, can we get to 20 million? A lot, a lot earlier, kind of my, my thinking was, can we get to 20? And now it's like, can we get to 100 realistically? Is that, is that, and what the things we need to do? What are the, what are the, the, the set of, no, though this problem set is completely different and, and that's new for me, at least it's new. And then, you know, and it's an interesting problem and I'm trying to solve that problem. 
and then I'm also having fun along the way. I'm mean, doing podcasts and writing, and this that's all part of part of the journey, really. And I like doing it. Uh, there's a bunch of things I like doing it. Then I'll just do it. Um, you know, I don't care what I like to do. I'll 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 just simply do it, and that's that keeps me. It's for my soul. I can I can say this. It's it's a lot of fun, so I do it. And in your journey from thirty to hundred right now, have you ever thought to raise money to make the process faster? Yeah. I mean, I've I've talked to a bunch of people. Obviously, I've not obviously clearly pulled the trigger on it and said like, okay, cool, we, we got we want to do it. I mean, I think there are pros and cons. I mean, what I don't like to believe is there's only one way to do things. Obviously, there's like you know, fifty ways to do the same thing and ten ten different ten different ways. So far, you know, I've not found a compelling reason to to raise a bunch of money. And even if we raise, it will largely be around like if we want to do a big acquisitions, which we cannot. You know, obviously, finance internally. Uh, that would be that would be the reason to go out and you know raise a bunch of money and kind of scale up even more. So, so that's how that's how I that's how I personally think about it. They're they're right and wrong. But I know companies who you know gone to you know five hundred million dollars in revenue without raising money too. So there's, there's no and clearly there's a whole bunch of companies that raise money. So I, I think it's it's a matter of a little bit of personal choice and opportunity as to like how how that will work. And I'm also very cognizant about the fact that who I work with is very important. You know, I I really like working with my team. They hopefully they like working with me. <laughs> you know, we all work very hard. We're all working. You know, I don't know. 10, 12 hours a day. Um, so to me, it's like who I work with on a day-to-day basis is extremely important. Uh, and uh, yes, you can get a lot of money and then, but if you hate your life, then it's actually not fun. It's kind of like, okay, cool, you got money, but you know, you're know you you're not happy. Um, I think happiness and kind of mental happiness in terms of who you're working with is actually extremely important. And in my mind, like that's why most of the, I mean, I have a bunch of founder friends who have obviously raised money and this and that, but like, you know, and most of the time it's like, look, I know I hit my board. I'm like, all right, dude, if you hit your board, then, you know, you kind of leave and, you know, do something else. Cause you know, just living your life, hitting your, you know, hitting your board is also equally kind of stupid in my mind, equally stupid. <laughs> so it's, you know, it's like, well, okay, you, you're kind of stuck. Uh, and then that relationship eventually fails. You can't kind of like, even on the other side, like if you're an employee and you hate your hate your job, then eventually kind of walk away. It doesn't matter. You only have one life. If you're not if you're not happy with your job, if you're not contributing, if, if, then then find another job. That's it. Straight up, it's not that it's not it's not the end of the world. So I strongly believe that, like you know, the the working relationship, you know, between kind of you know investors and founders have to be really healthy and good. And you see, you know, if that's the case, then it's actually you know it's not about raising money or not raising money. It's about having that amazing kind of working relationship with somebody and it's hard right i mean it's, it's almost like you don't know them they don't know you and you have your for your personality they have their own agenda they have their own personality so with co-founders we think a lot like okay who, who's going to be your co-founder you're going to think through that problem uh, but same same logic applies to investors in my mind yes you know so i, I think thinking through that and making making that case um, it's not easy. So, you know, and, 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 and that's why, uh, I think going back to your specific question, if I find somebody who thinks the way I think and can support me, then, and I can support them, then I think, then that would be, that would that'd be the time that I'd say like, yeah, let's just, I actually respect them and love them and I want them on my team. That's when I would probably say like, let's go, you know, get, get some money into the table. Then we have a specific purpose for that is to, you know, either acquire companies or uh, grow the business. That's what I would do. Awesome. Yeah, it makes sense. And also you mentioned that some, like, you know, there are founders that uh, hate their boards, 
but I also know that you're also on advisory boards in different companies. And tell us, what do you do as an advisor? Actually, I'm a, actually, honestly, I'm a pretty shitty board member. I, <laughs> I'm really bad at this. I don't spend a lot of time with the companies. I mean, I'm in the board of a couple other companies, which are, I'm, I'm pretty actively involved with the with the CEOs in some way, shape or form. But I, hopefully I don't write the rant the same way. <laughs> you know, I think I'm keeping, you know, I think, look, this is a hard problem, right? To say that, you know, you have solutions to all these problems, even if you've done this before, it's actually, you know, fundamentally not true, really, right? I mean, there are lots of variables. If you think about it, in order to get some level of success, there's like, you know, 15 different variables have to kind of click really, right? So, you know, and, and to say like, oh yeah, I do this and it's going to work. I'm like, yeah, no, not really. So I do this in this particular time and this particular group of people and this particular context and in this particular business, yes, it worked for you. And there are a lot of people who do the same thing and it doesn't work. And you can say like, why? I don't know why. It's just like, no, there are fucking 15, 20 variables. And I don't know. You just, you know, if you can do fix three variables, 17 other variables are out of your control. It may not work. So I, I, I don't think there is a, if there was a single formula that everybody could apply, then everybody would apply the goddamn formula. Simple, right? There's no, there, there is no, you know, single problem because there's time and there is context and there is personalities and all kinds of things are there. Like, you know, you know the, the, the kind of people you have makes a difference. So yeah, you know, with the, with the, with the companies that I'm in the board of, they're usually companies that I'm, I've either invested my money in or I've incubated from question pro realistically. Um, I don't do a ton of other investments, frankly. I, I spend most of my time with, you know, and, and the, those, the CEOs of those companies, I'm their friends and they're, you know, good friends with them, really. And hopefully they look at me as, as more as a friend than a board member. <laughs> Hopefully, so you should probably talk to them. Uh, but other than that, I'm I'm fairly hands off. I don't pretend to think that they, I have all the answers because there's a different business, there's a different context, different set of challenges, different set of personalities that are involved. So what for me, frankly, may not work for for them, but I let them make that decisions. It's really insightful. And again, thanks for your honesty. I mean, I like how transparent you are. It's awesome, and I think it's a pleasure even for our listeners to hear all the in and out of how to be a founder. So let's move to the closing question. It would be a little bit different than usual. It's just my personal curiosity. How did the two of you meet each other? I mean, I mean, Jimmy in Brazil, I know that you know each other somehow. And tell us, how did you meet online, offline? Online, I think I have known of him uh, since he built a company called Decipher uh, that actually competed with me. And so he used to compete with me. I didn't know him earlier on. And later on, I kind of bumped into him and then kind of just made friends with him online. And then I met, obviously, he's here. He's in Fresno. I'm in San Francisco. So it's not that far away. So then we met for lunch or dinner or something. I don't know, something about drinks. I'm not sure. So so before we went online and then I have deep respect for him. He's kind of, he built a cipher and he sold it. And I, hopefully he likes me too. So we met online and that's it. And I am, I mean, even like, in fact, I'm friends with a lot of my competitors. So it doesn't matter. I mean, the entrepreneur journey is a hard journey anyway. So there's lots of, you know, battle stories and wounds that you can talk about. Um, you go through a, a similar process. And you can exchange ideas and at least listen and empathize with each other. At a minimum, you can empathize. I, I empathize whether they, they compete with me or not. I empathize with all the founders and the, the issues. And because obviously, you know, we all gone through that in some way, shape or form in terms of success, failure, expectations, and so on. I met him online and we were just good friends. And in online, we just, you know, we have fun with each other. Um, just kind of when we are, when Jamie and I are on a, on a, 
on a any podcast uh, we always disagree with each other so it's just a great you know it's good for a good entertainment honestly so it's like we always disagree with about a bunch of different things which is fine i mean you know it is what it is so it's 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 not you know then you know we keep we keep most of the kind of webinars we do pretty lively and entertaining especially if he and i are there in the same webinar so he'll say something i'll say no that's a fucking stupid idea and he'll say no no that is a dumb idea so we we argue against each other and that makes for good good entertainment frankly uh, so it, it, it's fun yeah it's awesome actually even with my co-founder and partners that i mentioned dima he's also co-host of this product leaders podcast and usually when we are working on something new or discussing the way how we can grow strategy and whatever usually we always tend to shit each other ideas and then after the shooting period at the end yeah. we're still coming up with something mutual that we satisfied both of us and we is it's how we make a decision make we do decision making we just, we need to start shooting each other ideas and then after a while coming up with, with some things that would satisfy both <laughs> that's a good that's a good way of thinking about it yeah i mean disagreement doesn't mean that you know you are you know you think the person i think there's a difference between like okay look there's an idea and you can disagree on the idea and still have healthy respect for the person right you know? so i think so that's very true awesome seems like it was really insightful and thank you very much for sharing with us all your founder journey. I know if we would ha- we would have longer podcast recording, I am sure that you definitely have a bunch of stories, different failures and successes in your journey because you have managed already for 18 years. And yeah, and I think like one of the main ideas that you just bring up I think maybe in the future we would be able to schedule such a podcast where we'll invite you in Jamin Brazil. And then I will yeah. leave two of you. It'll, it'll be fucking entertaining, I can tell you this right now. So we know how to entertain people between Jamin <laughs> and I. So, so we can definitely talk about all kinds of things. So yeah. I'm sure be, that it'll be, be the most the most popular and most recent <laughs> episodes. Good cool. stuff. Yeah, thank you very much. And thank you very much for your time. Product Leaders Podcast is brought to you by FireArt. I was your host, Tolik. To find out more about FireArt and how we aim to build a brand that will contribute to the world with useful products to empower people and make their lives easier, visit fireart.studio. Search for Product Leaders in Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and Google Podcasts, or anywhere else podcasts are found. Make sure to click subscribe so you never miss any future episodes. On behalf of the team here at FireArt, thanks for listening.